Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we're here to talk about what Brittany and I have learned and are still learning in four years of advocacy, because I cannot believe it, but our podcast has been running for four years at this point. It seems like forever and also four days. It's a very (laughs) strange experience. (laughs) And I have no doubt by the time this episode airs, because we always record them and then they don't tend to air until like three to eight months later, you know, maybe we'll even be at like four and a half to five years of podcasting at that point. When I listen back to this episode, I'll be like, oh, there's more things I wanted to put in that I've learned even more. But yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think when we, you know, when we started advocating, when we started this podcast, the intention that I had wasn't advocacy. Like the intention was just to talk about the endometriosis experience, like talk about the gaslighting, talk about the ableism that we face, talk about the experiences that so many of us have had and like give voice especially to like things that I've been experiencing but over a year two years of podcasting I think our episodes have really changed there's been so much more advocacy so much more endometriosis education so much more talk of systems of oppression and healthism ableism racism and other entrenched systems of violence and it's just interesting to look back you know I finished up listening to the first 50 episodes of our podcast or we took a little break because it is impossible to edit old things while producing new things so we took like a three-month break at the end of 2022 and I went back and I listened to all of the episodes we had done in the first two years of podcasting and overall I was pretty happy with the majority of the episodes there were a few where I would like ooh wince (laughs) cringe cringe. (laughs) two of them because of the information which was the gut health episode so we i did go back and i just like completely redid the gut health episodes that we did and i also linked that on on our website in 16years.com so just like you know wrote a blog post about like all the gut health stuff i took down episode eight which was on nutrition and the endo diet and that was due to some misinformation And also just like poor delivery of the information. I really just did not like how we spoke about nutrition and the quote unquote endo diet. Also, reminder, there is no endometriosis diet. What we eat for endometriosis is very individualized. Whether or not dietary changes help our symptoms or not is also very individualized. Also, I'm very sorry about the couple of times that I villainized seed oils and gluten. Okay, and in addition to those, and I just want to touch on those really briefly because we're not going to talk about these in this episode, but I want to just like call them out um, and acknowledge them. And I'm sorry I'm making this intro really long. Brittany's just sitting here staring at me. But 
In addition, I want to say that we have a separate couple of episodes coming up on wellness culture because I heard some, not many, but like some internalized toxic beliefs that we had like from wellness culture in some of our earliest episodes. And very soon we have an episode coming up on naturopathy and functional medicine because I had mentioned those a couple of times in previous episodes, but definitely when talking about them lacked the nuance there. Basically, I raved about my own experiences, which were positive, but overall these practices can have a general lack of evidence-based medicine, and it's important to be able to identify red flags if you're going to work with a practitioner like this. Um, So we're going to talk about that in the future. That's coming up. In the meantime, you can check out my website in 16years.com. I updated all the information there. There's pages on nutrition, wellness culture, gut health, alternative medicines, things like that. So I think what I really noticed listening back to the podcast is there were things that I would have done differently today having the knowledge that we have today that we didn't have when we began this podcast. So the point of this episode is I wanted to bring forward the different things that we have learned in four years of advocating that I really wish that I had knew that Brittany and I had known from the get-go so that we could have incorporated that and kept that in mind when we were advocating from episode one. Something that I did was in episodes where I realized like, oh, I wished we had mentioned this, I did go back and I put learning moments at the beginning of all of those episodes. So not every one of the first 50 episodes have a learning moment, but I did go back and put these as learning moments. So prior to the episode starting, I actually come on and I say like, hey, this is Learning Moments with Amy. And I want to let you know, like in this episode, we did this thing or we talked about X thing and we would have done it differently. Had we known what we know now? At that time, we would have done this episode differently. We would have said these things differently. So I actually do address those things at the beginning of the episode, and then we let the original episode play. Before we get into some of the growth moments that we've had over the past four years, we wanted to start by talking about our platform and the platform that we have and our responsibility with having a platform as large as ours is. When we began the podcast, we didn't think that it was going to have such a wide reach. We didn't think we were going to have a platform. We didn't think we were going to have an Instagram with as many lovely followers as we did. Who would want to listen to us? <laughs> that's what we thought. Well, that's that's what I thought. Brittany had a lot more self-confidence. I, I also said, Amy, everyone's going to want to listen to you. And I was so. like, no, Brittany. <laughs> I don't know who's going to want to listen to I said to, to Amy in the beginning so many times that if the only person whose life is affected by this podcast is hers, then that's enough reason to do it. And I would say that definitely Amy's life has been affected by the podcast and definitely mine has been affected by the podcast. And we know, hearing from all of you lovely listeners, that we have affected your lives as well in a positive way. And we didn't think that in the beginning, however. We didn't think we were going to have what we would even consider to be a platform. But through a lot of the content that we put out and the hard work of this podcast, we were able to start gaining people who were following us and listening to what we were saying. Amy and I recognized that this was easier for us to do than some of our other creators in this space due to the systems that Amy and I benefit from. And we also acknowledge that there are excellent content creators out there that are struggling to get their voice heard because of the systems of oppression that are in place. 
And it's very important for Amy and I to open up our podcast and our platform to allow voices that may not have the same access that we do. Our platform is a responsibility that Amy and I have. And Amy and I have become acutely aware of the gravitas of our language choices, our content sharing, our resources, our information gathering. Everything that we share, we have a responsibility to do our due diligence in terms of proper research, proper information sharing, and also our language in terms of being inclusive and accessible. Having a platform is a privilege, and it's something that we don't take lightly, and it's something that kind of happened to us as a surprise. We didn't, again, expect to have a platform, but we do. And it's very important for Amy and I to use that platform for good and use that platform to share the information that we find to everyone in our community and to also allow others in our community without a platform to have a space to speak and share their information as well. I think it's only recently that I personally have understood what a responsibility is to have a platform because since the very beginning, we've always striven to have accurate information on this podcast, um, especially in terms of endometriosis. We spent a lot, I mean, like hours and hours and hours researching some of the episodes to try to make sure that they were accurate. Um, But I think it's only recently that I've just realized, like, as Brittany said, like the responsibility that we have, it's not just about having accurate information. It's about having inclusive information, having non-ableist language, having keeping in mind that not everyone's experience with endometriosis is the same because I have certain privileges as a white cishet woman that other people who don't hold my identities have. And so I think, and so Brittany and I are really trying to take this seriously and make an effort to have more interviews on the podcast, bring in more voices and experiences from people around the world with different identities whose stories many times are not shared as often as the predominant white cishet woman's voice and story. All right, so on to some of the things that we have learned. And of course, in saying these things, I'm sure there are things that we will still be learning in the future. And if there's ever anything that you want to point out to us as listeners of this podcast, if you think we are not addressing something, we are not keeping something in mind, we are ignorant of something, please reach out to us if you have, you know, if you like and you have the bandwidth, we're absolutely open to that. Our goal is to continue improving this podcast and continue to have inclusivity and awareness of all of the experiences within the endometriosis community. One of the first things we want to talk about that we learned was something that we all know, which is that endometriosis is not a uterine disease. But when we started out our podcast, a lot of what we talked about and centered our jokes and conversation around were periods and our uterus. Endometriosis is a full body disease, and the symptoms range from all parts of the body, not just one centralized location or not. Not just a bad period. Not just a bad period. Fatigue, and we diarrhea, will... body pain. Yes. Infertility, butt pain, vagina <laughs> so pain. So much butt pain. <laughs> <laughs> and we will shout that from the rooftops. And we knew, Pain though, with breathing, pain in <laughs> oh, the shoulder. Oh, she's not done. She's not done. Okay, keep going. <laughs> pain with breathing, pain in the shoulder, pain. 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Pain. Ankle pain? <laughs> well, toe pain? I don't really think ankle. Ear pain? I mean, mm, well, mm. yeah, you have ankle pain when, when you're having a flare. So, Well, I would <laughs> classify that more as like inflammation. Pain. Yeah, which was why. Endometriosis. Yes, see, thank you. Thank you. I will take my quarter and leave now. <laughs> thank you for the tip. Okay, <laughs> so back to me. So we knew, though, at the time of recording that endometriosis was a full body disease. Like we knew that in our brains, and that's something that we said, but we didn't actually really understand what that meant to us as people. Amy and I had full body symptoms, oh, like all yeah. the ones she was listing. <laughs> oh, okay? yeah, we did. Well, I didn't have shoulder pain because okay, that's more with thoracic for that endo, one. which I didn't have. So. But out of all of the symptoms, we have a majority of full body symptoms. Oh, yeah, we do. Not just bad periods, which we did and do also have. But we definitely had full body symptoms, but we didn't really understand or realize deep within ourselves at that time deep in the dark depths of amy and Brittany. yes <laughs> very dark depths <laughs> of amy and Brittany. <laughs> that those were symptoms of endometriosis and that those were just as life-altering and difficult to deal with as our bad periods like we knew they were life-altering and hard to deal with but, but we didn't like, know no at, as at the same time. Yeah, like when we began the podcast, I had just got diagnosed after 16 years of, you know, gaslighting and being told that none of those symptoms were connected and thinking that my extraordinarily painful period was completely separate from all the other issues of like the body pain, the inflammation pain, the butt pain, the, you know, digestive symptoms, the urinary symptoms, blah blah blah. And so it's like when we started, we were so focused on our periods and we were saying in the episodes all the correct information like endometriosis is not from retrograde menstruation. A hysterectomy will not cure endometriosis. Endometriosis is endometrium-like tissue found outside of the uterus. So it's like we were saying the right (laughs) stuff, but then we'd be like, oh, what happens when you call endometriosis? A uterus appears. <laughs> Making like lots we, like, of knew jokes. knew mentally, but we didn't know <laughs> internally, which means that we were accidentally, even though we had accurate statements, we were accidentally upholding this ideology that endometriosis is a uterus issue or just a bad period. And that's the part that we really wanted to talk about is because we also, in many of our episodes, talk about how it's not fair to say that it's a just a bad period. But we were making other comments that subconsciously upheld these false ideologies. Oopsie. And that's what <laughs> that's what unpacking and unlearning and relearning is all about, okay? Absolutely. And that's why now the learning moments that I mentioned that I went and put on what I did was I cut some of our jokes about the uterus in some of the episodes. And some I couldn't cut the jokes because they're like, first of all, they were really good jokes. But that's not why I didn't cut them, even though I was like, this is painful to cut them because it's so funny. <laughs> but, you know, in some of them, they're, they're like, some of these jokes were the central theme that was like weaved throughout the episode. Um, so I went and put those learning moments on the episode to let people who hear the episode now know that, hey, endo's not a uterine disease. Like, we really shouldn't have been making so many jokes about the uterus. So... There you have it, mm-hmm. folks. We have learned. Jokey, jokey, <laughs> uterus, uterus. Well, it makes a lot of sense as to why we see this iconography, if you will, mm-hmm. of the uterus 
on social media, on T-shirts, on literally anything that has to do with endometriosis. How else? Are, it's like when you think, oh, I want to represent endometriosis, where you're just going to put like a blob. <laughs> yeah, a blob of tissue. <laughs> what would that, that even look like? With a smiley face on it, a matte face? I don't <laughs> It makes a lot of sense why we use this iconography, because it does give us something to personify. Humans love to personify things. We give a personality to our car. We give a personality to our endo. I mean, we named ours. They have names. So humans like to personify something and having the image of the uterus or the item of the uterus helps us to do that. And it helps us to separate our feelings and blame something, which also feels very powerful as a person, as a human being. However, we're misplacing blame. And it sounds all good and lighthearted. Like, it's not a big deal if you, just, you know, if you make fun of the uterus, which it's not a big deal to make a joke. But the reality of the situation is that perpetuating this misinformation does affect in a ripple effect how we see our bodies, how we see our relationship with endometriosis and how our endometriosis care is. When we perpetuate the ideology that it's just a bad period or it just has to do with your uterus, then we are in turn adding to the system that harms our access to care. You may not be menstruating and still have endometriosis. You may not have a uterus and still have endometriosis. You may have endometriosis symptoms before menstruation. All of these different combinations don't solely have to do with this organ in our bodies, whether we have it or not, or with our period, whether we have one or not. And so Amy and I very much learned that while these jokes are fun to make because, yes, so much of our trauma surrounds our experience with our menstruation and the worst part of our experience with endometriosis for us is our menstrual cycle and for, is our period. For Amy and Brittany. Yes. When you say for, for us. The, for the two of us. For yes. us. For We're us. Only speaking for our experience as in me and Amy. But we do want to acknowledge that that is not the sole experience of endometriosis. And for some folks with endometriosis, the period and menstruation are not the most traumatic and difficult experiences that they have. Or, in some cases, a painful period may not even be a symptom at all. And that does not make their experience with endometriosis any less valid. I always thought that my uterus, because I had painful periods and so I didn't know I had endometriosis, so I always thought, oh, it's my uterus that's causing me all these problems because... I have these painful periods, right? And as it turns out, after I got excision surgery, and I actually, I don't have adenomyosis, which is a disease of the uterus. After I got excision surgery, my periods are no longer painful. I have my uterus still, but now I no longer have painful periods. Why? Because it wasn't my uterus that was ever causing me problems. It was my endometriosis. And since my worst flares occurred at the time of my period, I had always just assumed that it was my uterus, but it wasn't. It was my endometriosis. We need to leave the poor uterus so all this alone. time, I was all like, <laughs> oh, my blasted uterus. And I should have been like, oh, the blasted, splotchy blobs, <laughs> multicolored blobs in my body. <laughs> that amoebus form that is, that is living inside. <laughs> so in conclusion, I think Brittany and I have learned for this podcast and for ourselves and our advocacy, it is really important to... Be careful about what we say about the uterus, the jokes we make, the graphics that we use in our advocacy to not continually uphold, a, even subconsciously, the notion that endometriosis is equated with the uterus. 
So the next learning moment that we want to acknowledge is that endometriosis is not a woman's disease. And when Brittany and I started this podcast, we were not aware that endometriosis affects more than just women. When I was listening back to the podcast, I noticed that in our like first six months of episodes in the first like episode one through 20, more or less, you know, when talking about endometriosis, we talked about endometriosis in relation to women. So we weren't inclusive and we did not acknowledge all of the people in our community who have endometriosis. I think it's really important when it comes to advocacy to be inclusive. This disease is so horrible. This disease is absolutely awful. And not acknowledging the experience of every person in our community, people of all identities who have endometriosis, it not only provides a space that, you know, is not inclusive and not supportive to people who don't identify as cis women, but it perpetuates harm. It perpetuates harm in spaces like medical care support groups, you know, places where people go because they want to get education, they want to share their experiences, they want to be seen, they want to be understood. And when we're not inclusive in our advocacy, in our support groups, in healthcare settings, we're excluding people who have endometriosis. And not only that, but it can make care inaccessible. And I think we know as a community, all of us have had a super long, horrible story to get diagnosed full of years, perhaps decades of gaslighting. And I think that for me and Brittany, learning as we began this podcast that not everyone who has endometriosis identifies as a cis woman has been so vital because honestly, I don't want to gaslight even unintentionally any other member of this community who is suffering with endometriosis. So Who can get endometriosis? Endometriosis affects people of all sexes and all genders, including cis women, non-binary people, trans people, gender non-conforming people, intersex people, and cis men. So that's why it's really important to be inclusive in the language that we use to talk about endometriosis. And one of the simplest ways that we can do this is by saying people with endometriosis instead of women with endometriosis. Because this community is made up of people with endometriosis. In the vein of inclusivity, we also want to talk about the topic of intersectionality. And intersectionality is something that is essential to advocacy work and essential in a space where we're dealing with people of all varying identities and experiences. We do want to acknowledge that the space of advocacy for endometriosis, specifically on social media, is overwhelmingly and predominantly occupied by people who are white, heterosexual, cisgender women. It's important to acknowledge this because there are systems in place that allow those of us who hold those identities to be elevated in this space. It is much easier due to some very insidious parts of our society, like algorithms, AI, and code writing that favors people who are white, people who are cisgender, and people who are heterosexual. And this means that it's baked into the code, which means it's much easier for visibility to happen for folks that hold these identities 
compared to those that do not. Which isn't to say that people who have a platform and have worked really hard don't deserve their visibility. It's more to say that there is an unfair advantage, especially when it comes to social media. And being in a space of chronic illness, intersectionality has to be part of the conversation because not everybody with endometriosis holds the same identity or the same suite of identities or the same grouping of identities. We have to acknowledge how important it is for us to be aware of the different ways that our identities interact with the identities of other people in our communities. So what I mean is, is that how we identify is different. And as Amy said, everybody in this community is a person, a person with a different lived experience, a different set of identities. And those identities affect not only our experience with our endometriosis, but also our access to medical care our access to brave and safe spaces, our access to community. It can be very difficult for people of certain identities to gain access to some communities that we've created in the online space because, unfortunately, we can accidentally be exclusive when we don't realize that we are being that way. Intersectionality in the endo-advocacy realm means that it's important for us to share accurate information about our disease But it's just as important for us to acknowledge that the experience and access to care are not the same when you hold two identities together. The experience of a white cis woman who is disabled with endometriosis is not the same as the experience of a black non-binary disabled person with endometriosis or any other combination of identities. For me, I think that's one of my biggest learning moments is that I, when I started this podcast, I really didn't realize how lucky and also how privileged I have been in my care. Of course, it's taken me 16 years to get a diagnosis. There's been gaslighting and dismissal. There's been ableism and classism and sexism that has interfered with my access to care. But as a white cis woman who's straight, I haven't faced the same systems of oppression as a trans person, as a person of color, as other people in our community have faced. I think one of my biggest regrets with this podcast is that I just really was not aware of the privilege that I had. Like, for example, when I went to look for excision, you know, between living in a capital city And having a job that provided me with insurance, I was able to find a doctor within a few months and I was able to have excision within a few months after that. You know, even more luckily, my excision was covered by my insurance. So my doctor was in network with my insurance in the city that I lived in. And I didn't know what a huge privilege that was when I started this podcast. You know, I knew that care was inaccessible. I knew that excision was really hard to get. But it was like once I learned what excision was, I was able to get it quite quickly. And that's not the experience of millions of people worldwide with endometriosis who are not even, you know, who have to leave their city, their state, their country, who have to pay out of network, who are not able to access healthcare for a variety of reasons. I really just was not aware of the multiple systems of oppression and entrenched violence that people around the world face. Misogyny, racism, transphobia, fatphobia, 
ageism, classism, homophobia, discrimination based on religion. There, unfortunately, are so many ways that we as people or that the medical community can hold explicit and implicit biases. And those negatively impact a patient's ability to get a diagnosis, to get treatment, and to get the referrals that they need. And to sum up our learning moment about intersectionality, something that I think Amy and I both wish we had done a better job of at the beginning or at the start of our podcast, and of course are currently working on now to improve even further, is the way that we framed our experiences. So of course, Amy and I were talking about our lived experiences with endometriosis, but something we wish that we had done better and are striving to do better now is to highlight the experiences of people with different identities from our own and their lived experience with endometriosis. And we have had wonderful guests on our podcast from varying different different identities. And we're continuing to do this and we'll keep holding space for voices like these because it's very important for us to identify, acknowledge, and learn from all the varying different experiences with endometriosis in our community. It doesn't help us to act like somebody's lived experience isn't valid or didn't happen. And it doesn't help us to overwhelmingly only share one type of lived experience with endometriosis because we are stronger as a group than we are as individuals. And acknowledging all the different identities that interplay with the experience of endometriosis only makes our advocacy stronger and our community stronger. The next learning moment that we want to talk about is how we have been learning to choose our language carefully. You mean I have to think before I speak? (laughs) I don't want to do that. That sounds hard. That's actually really hard to do. I'm laughing, but like it's hard. (laughs) One in general, but two, I will say that when you're like in front of the mic and especially four years ago, like our entire first year of podcasting, not Brittany as much, but like I was incredibly nervous, incredibly nervous, so nervous. And like, you know, when you're nervous, how hard it is to find your words, right? So it's super important to choose vocabulary around endometriosis carefully. So what do we mean by that? What are some examples, Brittany? I think one of the biggest things for us on this podcast and for us as people has been understanding, identifying, and dismantling what's called black and white thinking. So good or bad and nothing in between or safe or unsafe and nothing in between. A lot of this language comes up with not just good or bad or safe or unsafe food, permitted versus prohibited, allowed or not allowed. Especially in terms of food and lifestyle and wellness. Wellness culture is toxic. Yes, it is. And And yet it has seeped. I'll just keep interrupting Brittany. Yeah, she's never going to stop. And yet, well, I've become impassioned. Good versus bad. Good versus bad. (laughs) Amy's a good. Brittany's Excuse me. Thank you. And yet, like, wellness culture has become seeped into the way that I think we talk without meaning to. Like, especially the way that. Like Brittany and I talked about food and like wellness at the beginning. There was so much binary thinking like these are good foods, these are bad foods, these are permitted, these are not permitted. I mean, on an individual level, not like blanket recommendations for everyone, but for ourselves, right? It was like, oh, like I'm allowed to eat these and I'm not allowed to eat these. I'm like, now I listened back to the episode that we did on diet. I was like, oh, no. Painful. (laughs) But that was a great learning moment to put in. I put in, hey, Brittany and I don't talk about our lifestyle and eating habits in the way that we did 
back then because mm-hmm. we've deconstructed this like internalized diet culture that we were living from. And diet culture and wellness culture upholds this idea of Eurocentric white colonized beauty standards. And that's something I think many of us are learning and trying to understand that the idea of wellness and how healthy looks is not the same across any type of person. And this black and white thinking goes into that. You either fit this or you don't. You either are eating the right things or you're not. Humans really gravitate towards black and white thinking. It makes us feel safe. It makes us feel like I know one choice or the other. And I don't have to deal with nuance. I don't have to deal with living in the gray. No, not the gray. <laughs> Which is Brittany's favorite color, it by the way. It is my favorite color. <laughs> and our- Ironic, isn't it? <laughs> yes, gray is my favorite color, both in thinking and in just actual colors. But living more in the gray is something Amy and I have been practicing and will continue to practice our entire lives. And this applies to the way that we think about situations. There is not always one or two answer. There is not always a binary. And that's definitely a word that, as a society, we've been deconstructing for a while. We talk about the sex and gender binary. We talk about lots of different types of binary thinking, which is black and white thinking, in the way that we look at our own relationship with things, like our endometriosis, like our community, like our food. And it's very difficult to live in nuance, and it's very difficult to live in gray, but it is very rewarding because. It helps us to understand that there isn't only one or two ways of doing things. We're not restricted by anybody else's opinion on the way that we're making a choice. And we're not restricting or shaming or judging ourselves for the choices that we make. Amy and I don't see the way that we live with our disability or with our chronic illness the same as we did several years ago. Woo! No, we don't. The growth. (laughs) So much growth. That is something when I listened to episode one through 50 and then thought about like the episodes coming out. Now I'm like, wow, the growth is exponential. (laughs) It really is. And it's been really freeing to actually live in the gray, which sounds scary when you're like, I have to not think one way or the other. There's a third and more options. Ah! It sounds really scary, but I like to think of two things. The first is What harm would letting go of the ideology that there's only two ways to do things, what harm would that do to me? Nothing. It wouldn't harm me to let go of the idea that food is either good or bad. It wouldn't hurt me. It would harm the diet culture. It would harm the diet culture. It would harm the wellness industry. (laughs) But it wouldn't harm me. All it would do is free me from the ideology that food has inherent morality, which we know isn't true. But we use that language anyway because it's common in our culture. It would only help me to be free of that system that holds me to something that makes me feel feelings that only hurt me. Second thing is, even if I do subscribe to one half of that binary, say I think all food is good, so I'm never going to call any food bad, it doesn't harm me to allow other people to say, but there's a third or more option. And I think that's two things that is really important to learn is that just because we don't understand how somebody else refers to something within this black or white or gray thinking doesn't mean that it's wrong. So, yes, we may say, I don't want to use bad and good, but maybe that is a dismantling to somebody else. And letting people use language that feels comfortable for them is really important, as just as important as it is for me to dismantle language that I use that harms me. 
And I think that that's very difficult. There's so many different terms to use and language is so ever-changing and so difficult to ever pin down to one way to do things because language isn't binary just as much as anything else isn't. And it's always evolving and always growing. And we're always growing as people when it comes to the words that we use, the words that we create. There's new terms that come into popular lexicon every single day. But I do think it is important to separate the language that we use for ourselves from what we've been told to use. And that can come with when we see things as one or the other, thinking about if there's another option. I think for me, one language preference that I've learned over the years is, you know, before I talked about endometriosis treatment and endometriosis treatment, by that I meant like excision or ablation surgery, hormonal medication. But now I think in our advocacy, we really try to separate treatment for endometriosis from management of endometriosis. So we know that excision surgery is the gold standard treatment because it is the only treatment option that removes the disease fully from the body. And so with hormonal suppression and ablation, to me, those aren't really treatment options because they don't treat the disease. And like, yes, ablation superficially burns the surface of the disease, but we know that with ablation, it's not removing the disease fully. You know, it's not getting that part of the iceberg that's under the surface. It's just burning the superficial. And it can cause some people more symptoms and more pain than they started with before the ablation surgery. So, you know, to me, hormones and ablation, they are not treatments. They're just ways to manage the disease, manage the symptoms of the disease. To me, excision surgery is the only treatment of the disease. And so and so choosing our language carefully when we say treatment or management, you know, these have different connotations. If we say, oh, I'm treating my endometriosis with hormones, it's like, well, I'm I'm managing my symptoms, but I'm not actually treating my disease. And I think this is something else with we often hear about recurrence of endometriosis, endometriosis coming back, the recurrence rates. Something I've learned over the years is it's not just about recurrence rates, it's recurrence slash persistence. Recurrence is endometriosis coming back. Endometriosis has been removed, typically by excision, and it's come back. Persistence means that endometriosis was never removed in the first place. So the endometriosis persists, right? It was never removed. So this is like typically by ablation. Like with ablation, we hear people say, oh, the recurrence rates are really high. In reality, this is typically persistence rates that are high because endo wasn't even removed in the first place by the ablation. So I think, you know, we've switched over from saying recurrence rates to recurrence slash persistence rates of endometriosis because in some cases, endometriosis, depending on the surgical technique, depending on the surgeon, in some cases it has recurred. In the majority of cases, endometriosis is actually just persisting because it was never even removed from the body in the first place. And we have to make that distinction because without making that distinction, like that really muddles the actual recurrence rate. You know, and there's so many issues with this, like lumping excision and ablation together in the research and then 
you know, these researchers come back and say like, oh, the recurrence rate with endometriosis is like super high. And it's like, no, you cannot lump together a recurrence rate and a persistence rate. Persistence rates are always going to be so much higher because endo wasn't removed in the first place. Some of the other terms that we learned more about and then have dismantled and are continuing to dismantle from our language or our normal everyday use lexicon are terms like sanitary when it comes to talking about menstrual products. Sanitary adds to this connotation that in order to be sanitary or clean or hygienic, you must use this product because the purpose that you have to use it for is inherently dirty. So you mean like sanitary napkins? Correct. Sanitary Sanitary products. products. Yes, exactly. And periods are not dirty. (gasps) They're not filthy. They're (gasps) not gross. They're not not, shameful. But that's not what the predominant culture says, Brittany. Well, it also woven into terms like this, especially when it comes to calling menstrual products sanitary, has to do with the idea that society demands that you be hygienic and clean and fresh smelling as a daisy constantly. In order to be a valid member of society. Good luck with that. I'm totally averse to taking a shower because it makes me feel so tired after. So unfortunately, this language like sanitary is used as a manipulation tactic because it makes us feel like we must purchase X item. We must have the highest tier, the most, the best, the biggest, whatever that case is, in order to not be seen as gross or unhygienic or unsanitary. Let's say it here and now. Periods are not gross. They are not not unsanitary. Shameful. They're not dirty. They are not taboo. Something else in the same vein is calling menstrual products feminine products or feminine napkins, feminine items, which is seen on a lot of signage, on a lot of boxes. Correct. And this is also just a misnomer because people who use these products are not solely feminine. People who use menstrual products can have different identities that aren't just feminine or female. They're used by intersex folks, non-binary folks, trans folks, and various other identities that are not feminine or female. Only calling these products feminine products adds to the gap we have between the people that are actually using these products and the people we assume are only using these products, which adds and perpetuates again the harm against the populations who are trying to access menstruation products but may find it difficult or shameful or find judgment or questioning when they're accessing these types of products. So removing the genderization from these products can help access for everyone. In terms of endometriosis, a language that we've been shifting towards is away from saying endometriosis specialist and towards saying expert excision surgeon. As we know, the word endometriosis specialist really has no meaning because anyone can say that they are a specialist in endometriosis because that is not a regulated term and endometriosis is not its own specialty, even though it should be. So changing in our language, changing away from endometriosis specialist to excision surgeon, if that's what we're talking about. So many times I was talking about my excision surgeon, but instead I said endometriosis specialist. And I think now we're seeing more of distinguishing if they're an excision surgeon or if they're an expert excision surgeon. Because as we know, there's expert excision and then there is non-expert excision. So within excision, there is a 
broad range of experiences and skill levels that the surgeons have, which is one of the main reasons why not all of us have the same experience when we have excision surgery. Some of the other terms that Amy and I have worked and are continuing to work to scrub from our day-to-day language usage are terms that would fall under the classification of ableist. And these can be terms that come from different communities or are used to describe different disabilities that have been turned into terms to describe other things. For instance, the term crazy is a word that has been used historically to negatively describe people who are experiencing mental health crisis or living with mental illness. And taking this terminology and making it mean anything from extreme <laughs> Literally to interesting anything. to overwhelming ridiculous to difficult unbelievable amazing we really diminish the harmful impact that that word had and continues to have and it's a word that is still used in the medical realm to gaslight people who are expressing their lived experiences they're dismissed as simply crazy and this term is still used and when we take it and dilute its use even further by saying, I had the craziest day. It is continuing to harm people who have this word used against them, especially when they are experiencing mental health crisis or living with mental illness. Other terms like this would be terms like tone deaf or I'm blind to or have been blinded to. These other terms like deaf and blind describe entire communities. And when we take those terms and diminish their meaning and co-opt them for our own usage, we are actively harming the communities that those terms belong to or communities that use those terms as identities. It's important to acknowledge that when a word has been taken from a group of people or taken from a place of harm or was used to previously harm people, that when we when we utilize it without the understanding of that context or that knowledge, we are playing into that system. Well, ableist language, that's what this is called, is ableist language, and it is totally rife in our vocabulary, um, in the English language. And it was something that I really didn't even know anything about until I started doing this podcast. And when I became more involved in the disability community, after I started identifying as dynamically disabled. so. I think ableist language is something that is really important that we become aware of. There's a lot of great resources, really great resources out there about ableist language. So I think, you know, if I could go back, one of the biggest things would be like learning about ableist language before we began the podcast. Brittany and I try really hard now that we know about ableist language, not to use it in our episodes, but Unfortunately, there's so much ableist language out there. There's like some of the big ones, like Brittany said, and then there's things that we would not even think were ableist. And there's also language that has, you know, racist connotations behind it that Brittany and I have been learning as well. And so just trying to have more care with the way that we speak, be more intentional with the way that we speak, and not uphold these systems of entrenched violence unintentionally with the way we're speaking. All right, here's another one is referring to endometriosis lesions as endometriosis implants. And endometriosis can actually refer to in either way. So you can say like endometriosis implants, endometriosis lesions, and I think certain people definitely have their own preferences. 
And in research, they often say endometriosis implants. One of the reasons why Brittany and I no longer say endometriosis implants is because it has this connotation that endometriosis is implanted from retrograde menstruation and backwards flowing menstrual blood. Ooh, the good old backwards flowing menstrual blood that then implants itself in your abdominal cavity. No, boo. No, thank you. No, no, no. And so we've gotten away from using implants, even though it is widely used in our community, because lesions is a much more neutral way to talk about endometriosis without any kind of implantation. (laughs) Anyone? Tough audience. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone without any implication. Okay, fine, people. Oh, gosh. Just support me. It's just you all by yourself. (laughs) Nobody is laughing or hearing you. Hello? (laughs) Is this thing on? (laughs) Am I recording? (laughs) But anyway, lesions is a much more neutral term without any implications to the origin of the disease, which, by the way, as we know, is not retrograde menstruation. To bring it back to my favorite color, gray. <gasps> I want to talk she about. Loves gray. I love gray. People Do you love the dark gray or the light gray. I love all or the pewter gray. gray or the granite oh, gray. They're all beautiful. The mm. only kind of gray I don't like is a green gray. Sorry, green gray lovers. That one's not for me. But every type of cool gray is totally for me. I'm gonna go put my gray sweater on after. <laughs> My car is gray. My favorite color is gray. I I do love it. People laugh and think that I'm lying, but I'm not. I like granite gray, but I'm not into the light gray. Yeah, the the darker, the better for me. I like a concrete. I like a charcoal. I like a magnetite, a hematite. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. She's naming (laughs) colors I don't even know existed. (laughs) I love gray, okay. (laughs) We noticed. So to continue with the conversation about how things are gray, we wanted to talk about how endometriosis is very nuanced. And I bring up gray because... It's very gray. That is the color that, it, that we assign to nuance, okay? Every aspect of endometriosis is nuanced. And every aspect of endometriosis does not replicate itself from one person to the next. That's why it's important to look at the language that we're using when we're talking about especially a symptom or an experience of endometriosis. To use language like it may, it could, it might, rather than speaking in absolutes. No two experiences are the same. No two people have the same symptom presentation with endometriosis. So instead of saying endometriosis causes painful periods, it's better to say something like endometriosis may cause painful periods because no two experiences are alike. Well, not just in terms of experiences, but when talking about the biology of the disease itself, there are three types of endometriosis. And what we know is that endometriosis is not a homogenous disease. So that means that different forms of endometriosis act differently from each other in certain aspects. And so even when talking about the biology of endometriosis, it's always better to just say like endometriosis can blah, 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 or endometriosis may blah, 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 rather than like talking in absolutes like endometriosis lesions are blah, 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 because that might be true for endometriomas, but that might not be true for peritoneal lesions, or that might be true for endolesions on the bladder, but that might not be true for endolesions on the diaphragm. Okay, the last learning moment that we want to talk about, this is not our last learning moment through the podcast, but these are the ones that we really wanted to bring up because With our learning moments, I mean, I think part of 
this like part of this is, you know, sharing what we've learned and like being transparent about the mistakes that we've made, the regrets that we have and the growth that we've had. A goal of this episode is that, you know, if you are starting a platform or a social media page or a podcast, you know, maybe these are takeaways that could help you in beginning your project because these are certainly things that I wish that Brittany and I wish we had known about four years ago when we began. So the last one we want to talk about today is how deep endometriosis misinformation goes. Now we know that there's so much, so much, so much misinformation around endometriosis. You know that hysterectomy cures it. No, it doesn't. That pregnancy cure is it. No, it doesn't. (laughs) That it's from backwards flowing endometrium. No, No, it it doesn't. doesn't. (laughs) But as you peel back the layers of why the predominant common endometriosis information, misinformation, is of such poor quality, like it's just like you keep uncovering problem after problem after problem. It's like the rabbit hole goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And suddenly you're at the core of the earth and you're still digging. It's like a magic core of the earth that just like keeps going and going and going and going. (laughs) (laughs) It's tough because it's really hard to know where to get factual information. Some of the National Endometriosis Foundations worldwide are spreading myths and misinformation about endo. Why? Because the world <laughs> is doomed. I don't know. Why? Well, we'll, we'll peel back the layers yeah, now. Okay. But it's like, no, come on. It's really tough when you see it and you're like, you should know better. I trusted you. We all trusted you. People don't. are still trusting you. Don't trust people. <laughs> no, trust some people. Okay, Brittany, what about national organizations for endometriosis? Some of them are continuing to this day to spread myths and misinformation about endometriosis. No! Correct. No, but they are. Okay, what about research that we have on drugs? Specifically, I'm thinking about GnRH drugs. Mm, Those GnRH drugs. Such as Lupron. Yes, correct. Well, some of that research that we have about those GnRH drugs, like Lupron, were funded by pharmaceutical companies. So meaning they paid for their own research. What kind of a big deal is that, Brittany? Someone's got to pay for it. Yeah. Well, have you heard of this thing called bias? Oh. Yeah. (laughs) And we know that industry-funded studies tend to favor the company because Uh of that bias. Mm. The study may favor the company or the research that they actually use when they publish their study cherry-picks the information that they want to perpetuate. So it shows the drug in a more favorable light, and it downplays the side effects or the negative consequences of the medication. Oh, this sounds like something Dr. Redwine uncovered when he did his 300-page analysis of the raw data from Lupron. It sure is. And if you want to know more, see our episodes 30 through 39 for that. Okay, Brittany, what about like hype and marketing around pharmaceutical drugs? You know, it's really funny. I don't use cable TV because I'm a millennial and apparently we don't use cable TV. I only have streaming services. And I went to visit my partner's mother and she only has cable TV. And I forgot how many pharmaceutical commercials were on cable television via advertisement. 
I haven't watched cable television. In Ask your a doctor long about time. blah blah blah. It's every other commercial. Are your it's elbows for medication. itchy? Do your toenails fall off and go Do bump you in the blink night? Sometimes and feel like you shouldn't. <laughs> Did take your this medication move around in your mouth? <laughs> Ew! Now I'm gonna think about my tongue moving around. <laughs> Why do you do that? <laughs> but it's so pervasive. There are so many medication commercials, and if you don't, if you also only have streaming services, if you take the bus somewhere, they're on the side of buses. They're on bus stops. They're on the side of buildings. They're on billboards going down the highway. Medications are marketed to us so pervasively in America. And the only other place it's legal is New Zealand. So we're living this really weird experience that other people (laughs) don't know what to deal with from other countries. Well, not only that, but what we see when new drugs come out is that there's, and we've seen this with a, a recent endometriosis drug that came out in 2018. Which one am I talking about? I think you know. And there's so much hype, right? There's like so much hype and marketing and like articles published. And this is not just with endometriosis. This is like common practices with pharmaceutical companies is that, you know, they can have awareness campaigns with hidden agendas and pharmaceutical companies underwriting continuing medical education credits. There's major problems within not just the endometriosis community, but in general in healthcare with the pharmaceutical companies and a lot of the practices that they have. Okay, Brittany, what about the doctor's education? Well, the first toughie about doctor's education is a lot of times medical progress is moving faster than textbooks can keep up with. Outdated. So they're learning from outdated medical textbooks. The endometriosis guidelines from ACOG. Sorry. Yeah, I know. It's it's worth laughing. Let me say it one more time for you. Endometriosis guidelines. There there you go. (laughs) That's my actual laugh, by the way. I sound like a chicken. I'm like about to lay an egg. About to lay an egg. I could lay a guideline. I was going to say, your egg is going to be actually good guidelines because we don't have I could lay an egg that had a guideline inside of it that would be better than some of these guidelines that that we have. I agree with that. All of these different guidelines around the world, first of all, they're not the same. <laughs> Bagok. Right? Like, they're not the same guidelines. Like, there are different guidelines in Europe, in Australia. I mean, many of the points are the same, but there are differences among them, which is like, um, aren't we a worldwide community? Well, that's because <laughs> of who makes the guidelines. So they're made by different working groups and different experts in various fields, which almost never include excision surgeons at the table. Surprise, mm-hmm. surprise. Wah, wah. You know, the research that they're using is different. Their levels of expertise is different. And the ideas that they have about endometriosis is different. So a lot of these guidelines are based on research, but then they also are based on expert opinion, the working group's expert opinion. So it's like, well, who are the experts? And give, where did that expert opinion giving the opinion get bias from? What about endometriosis research, Brittany? (laughs) Well, a lot of endometriosis research is done on mice. The mousy mousies. Little mice. I hate animal testing. This breaks my heart every time. But they do endometriosis research on mice. But not only is that a problem, but the second part of that problem is that these mice don't actually have endometriosis naturally. So they're not mice with endometriosis. They're 
mice that are given endometriosis. They're not endomyceotris. Yes, correct. <laughs> Endomyceotris, yes. <laughs> well, another problem with research is that a lot of research, non-mouse research, is done on endometriomas. And as we said earlier, there's three types of endometriosis and they're not homogenous. So it's great to have research on endometriomas, but that cannot always be extrapolated to superficial or um, deep infiltrating endometriosis. And another aspect is that another another. I'm never going to end. I'm just going to have aspects. The for layers the rest of my go life. deeper. deeper the layer deeper, of the deeper, onion. Deeper, deeper, deeper. The layers of endo. The layers of apophe. <laughs> this other layer. Research is missing key contributions from excision surgeons who are actually operating instead of performing studies. Of course, it's not the surgeon's fault. They're literally surgeons. They're doing their job performing surgery. They are busy, and it takes so much time, energy, research, and data to actually publish a study. Well, and I love that in the episode 100 that we did with Dr. Mangeshakar, which definitely go listen to that if you haven't. He is an expert excision surgeon from India, and he is very knowledgeable and has special interest in bowel endometriosis. But he talked about, in the episode we did, like he talked about how hard it is for excision surgeons to publish research because they're in the OR a day, they're operating like a lot of these surgeons want to do data collection because data is so important and it can drive change and it can drive information about this disease. But if you're operating with your own practice, you're not working in an academic institution, if you don't have easy access to grants or statisticians or like other people needed to design and execute studies, it can be extraordinarily difficult for these surgeons to do a study on excision. And a lot of what we see in the studies done on excision, because there are studies out there on excision, one of the main problems with these studies is we don't know the skill level of the excision surgeon doing the excision. For these studies that are done on excision, it's like, well, who was the, who was the surgeon? Because as we've said, there is excision and then there's expert excision. And another problem is a lot of research lumps all endometriosis surgery together, says laparoscopy for endometriosis or surgery for endometriosis, and it lumps excision and ablation together when those are two drastically different techniques with drastically different patient outcomes. So it's all a mess. This is all a mess. A messy mess. <laughs> it's a me- it's endometriosis. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> to go back even further with another several layers of this onion, let's talk about the sex and gender bias in medicine, specifically misogyny in medicine. Mm. This sex and gender bias means that there is hardly any money, any support, or any interest for research of diseases that commonly affect people assigned female at birth. Not the layer we wanted, the layer we got. Great. (laughs) That's a rotten layer in that onion. It's a rotten onion, but, you know. We found a research article called Endometriosis is Undervalued. Wow, I didn't really need a study to tell me that, but thank you. (laughs) It's validating, though. It's validating. Yes, correct. But it's called Endometriosis is Undervalued, a call to action. Ooh, we like that part. (laughs) And it is written by Kay Ellis. D. Monroe, and J. Clark, and it is from May 2022. Ooh, recent. 
Well, you're not going to like it, Brittany. So (laughs) basically it says that the National Institutes of Health, which is the largest source of biomedical research funding globally, allocates $41.7 billion per year. Okay, so we have $41.7 billion per year for biomedical research funding. Whoa. Now, why don't you try to guess in 2022 what the expected funding for endometriosis is going to be. Part of me wants to say a dollar because I'm (laughs) salty, (laughs) but I know that it's at least two dollars, so I'm going to go with two dollars. Final (laughs) answer. (laughs) Okay. Well, you're right, Brittany. It is only two dollars per patient per year. No, I was kidding. Two dollars. Two joke again. Uh, I didn't want to be right. (laughs) Well, here they said, so thinking that endometriosis affects 11% of the people assigned female at birth here in the United States, that comes to $2 a person, $16 million, which is 0.031% of the budget. That's not even 1%. Like that that's like far away from one percent. Like <laughs> not oh even, my gosh. No, not even no. half a percent. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm gonna cry. This is embarrassing. It's mortifying. <laughs> they should be embarrassed. Now, as a comparison of numbers, they say that twelve percent of people assigned female at birth in the United States are expected to suffer from diabetes in their lifetime. So eleven percent for endo, twelve percent for diabetes. So you would think, maybe, hopefully... I would think the numbers would be similar in terms of funding. (laughs) Yeah, that's where I know I'm wrong. I know I'm wrong. (laughs) That's funny. So what they did here was because diabetes affects people of all sexes, and so does endometriosis. But unfortunately, we know that endometriosis has been caged into this idea that it, you know, only affects cis women, that it is a quote-unquote woman's disease. Right. So in this article, they're basically pointing out that the medical funding for diabetes, which affects all sexes. So they've taken how much is given for diabetes in total, and then they took half of that to just like account for the people assigned female at birth. And there was a funding of guess how much per person? Way more than two dollars, I'm sure. Thirty one dollars and (laughs) thirty cents. Almost thirty two dollars. Thirty (laughs) dollars more almost. So they say that. (laughs) So here's a great quote from the article. Quote, if endometriosis was funded by the NIH at half the level of diabetes, the budget would need to increase almost 16 times. Oh, my gosh. To over 250 million (gasps) annually. And where are we at right now, Brittany? 16 million. Uh-huh. Yep. That's a lot of differences of millions. <laughs> it's the belief of the authors. So I'm still quoting here. It's the belief of the authors that present levels of endometriosis funding do not reflect the immense pain of patients, long delays in diagnosis, the ineffectiveness of common treatment options, massive knowledge gaps, substantial economic burdens, or the immense costs borne by individual patients. Unexplored in the scope of this paper, but vital, is the investment into structures to translate research fundings into clinical care. 
understanding the epidemiological underpinnings of patient diversity, increased awareness through public education about endometriosis so affected patients are better aware, and into healthcare practitioner training about how to best treat and support endometriosis patients. Can I just shake, end quote, can I just hug Ellis <laughs> Monroe and Clark because that was stated so plainly so and good. so eloquently, the pervasive issue that not only with funding, but also the access to care, like, And wow, recognizing bravo. the patient diversity from that That was article. lovely. Thank you to the three of them for that research and that study. Four years is a long time to spend on a project, especially a labor of love, a labor of passion, and a labor of pain. And it's a long time to talk about one singular topic, of course, many facets of the topic, but it's a long time to talk about a topic as complex as endometriosis is because of the systems that are woven into our experience. And Amy and I have spent a lot of time challenging each other in personal growth, in our own physical lives, as well as our mental lives and our understanding of the world around us. And we've also been positively challenged by the community that we're in, in order to understand the lived, diverse experiences of other people in the endo community, and also to help us to be firm in where we stand on things like inclusion and advocacy. And these learning moments are going to be learning moments for our entire lives. This is not something that ever just resolves itself. You don't ever get to a place and you say, all right, well, now I'm perfect. That's just not the case because through time, you get access to more and more experiences and more and more voices and we learn more and we learn better. And this is something that has been so enriching for both Amy and I, both in terms of this podcast and in terms of how we function in the world and the way that we can either inflict harm on others or not. Listening back to the first 50 episodes of our podcast and comparing them to the episodes that we, you know, are launching now, we're over episode 100 at this point, and seeing the huge growth that Brittany and I have had, the emotional healing, the deeper understanding of education and information around endometriosis, the awareness of social issues in our community, and the vital need for intersectionality, changing our language to be more inclusive and less ableist. All of these are, I think, huge feats that Brittany and I are really proud of, but we also understand that this is really just a drop in the ocean. And we are still learning. We are still committed to learning. I wish that we had known all of these things when we began our podcast. So I really just want to say right now, like, I apologize for all of the times that I was not inclusive, that I used ableist language, that I excluded the experiences of others, that I, that I erased any other experiences or made anyone feel like they didn't matter. And I apologize for all of the times in the future that I will do that as well. Unintentionally, of course, because we are working on our language, but as Brittany said, it's a work in progress. It will always be a work in progress. And that's something that I really understand more and more is that it's just like with endometriosis care. And we were like talking about that, like rotten onion and pulling back the layers of why our care is so bad and it keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. That's kind of what I've been understanding more and more about 
inclusion and intersectionality and language choices is that these systems of oppression that we live under, the ableism, the racism, the ageism, the classism, the homophobia, the transphobia, the fatphobia, we're living under these systems and, you know, learning about these systems and then deconstructing my internalized attitudes, my biases is lifelong work. Um, So I'm really happy that we're working on it, that Brittany and I are working on it, and we will always be working on it. So I just really want to thank you all for joining us in this journey, not only a journey of endometriosis advocacy, but a journey to really learn more about the experiences that all people on this earth have, which are very, very diverse and varied. Amy and I have made a commitment to ourselves and to each other to always be learning about the systems of privilege that we benefit from and to challenge those in each other. And we'll continue to grow and learn in these ways our entire lives. It's important for us not only as advocates in the endo space and members of the endo community, but also as human beings that survive with and live around and interact with others, that our lives should be filled of giving uplifting moments and support and love to other humans around us rather than inflicting harm or damage or putting out hate into the world. And this is a lifelong promise that Amy and I have made for ourselves that we are committed to doing this work and working hard and challenging ourselves so that we can put out into the world what we want to see, which is love and support and inclusion. We want to leave you with a question for today, which is, if you are an advocate in the endometriosis space, what's something that you've learned in all of your years of advocacy? And if you're a member of the endometriosis community, what is something that you have learned from the endometriosis community that you didn't expect to in terms of inclusion and language and awareness? Thank you so much for listening today. We're on the website in 16years.com, and there we have all kinds of resources and links and write-ups about different topics related to endometriosis, everything from treatment to taking a full-body, multidisciplinary approach. So really encourage you to check that out if you haven't already. And if you'd like to support us, we'd love if you can rate our podcast in your podcast app. If you can leave a review, you can reach out to us. Or you can even buy us a coffee via the link in the show notes today. Thanks so much. 